Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. I'm going to look at Philippians 3 today. Now, we've skipped 2 because Tim's doing that and he's, he's finished it and he's very excited about preaching through Philippians chapter 2. So he's going to do that next week. So we're going 1, 3, 2. Um, so I was going to do chapter 3 next week, um, but I'm going to do it today. And as you know, I'm sort of old-fashioned in my preaching style. I like expositional, pre- exegetical preaching. That's kind of what I do. Over, you know, I started it probably 30 years ago with my first sermon. I kind of just stuck to that, that uh, template, which is I like to work through a text and to see what it's saying to us. And today I've broken Philippians up into three sections. Am I normally on the stage? Okay. Well, you guys either got taller or I got shorter. That's what I was thinking. Um, But I want to begin with a story about an elderly gentleman who was driving down the highway when his mobile rang through his Bluetooth audio system and he pushed the button and answered the phone and it was his wife. The man's wife urgently warned him saying, I just heard the news on the news that there's a car going the wrong way on Highway 401. I know you're on that road on your way home. Please, please be careful. And the man replied to his wife, honey, you won't believe it. It's not just the one car. There are hundreds of cars going in the wrong direction. Obviously, when we're talking about actual driving, we need to obey the law and follow proper driving instruction. But if we use driving and the flow of traffic as a metaphor for the Christian life, we realise realise it's a challenging call to be a Christian. We are called to live and to walk in God's ways and to move with God's flow. And often that puts us against the prevailing worldly flow of traffic. How do we sustain our commitment? How do we sustain our passion when we are bombarded each day with alternative worldviews? all about body ministry, so we're good. Thank you. I'll start again. No, I won't start again. (laughs) Um, So really, how do we maintain that passion and that commitment when we often feel like we are going against the flow of traffic in this world? And I think Paul in this passage gives us a simple but clear answer to maintaining that commitment or passion. Now, as I said, I've broken this passage into three sections. And if you have your devices with you, you could go to uh, chapter 3. And I want to begin, first of all, in verses 1 to 3, where Paul warns the Philippians against false teachers. And he is upset. He is upset. 
he writes, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It's a safeguard for you. Listen to what he says. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. So Paul, in the beginning of this letter, in chapter 3, I should say, Paul begins with a number of warnings against the opponents of the gospel or good news of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't hesitate about expressing his concern to the Philippian church because they're being led astray. And he begins with a threefold warning. Watch out for these dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh. They're very harsh words. But Paul is a passionate fellow. And any time anyone tries to move away from the gospel or add anything to the gospel, you see that his words are very harsh. It's the same in Galatians chapter 1. In New Testament times, dogs were generally viewed as detestable scavengers in the Greco-Roman world. For a Jewish person, they're considered unclean. The term or word for dog came to be used for all who had morally polluted minds. He calls them evildoers, probably referring to the teachers who are spreading destructive teaching those who seek to add particular rituals to the good news of Jesus Christ. Essentially what they are trying to do is make Gentile, that is non-Jewish Christians, submit to certain aspects of the Torah or the law. The law that was given to the Jews. And for Paul, this is a work of evil. Because they are trying to persuade the Gentile Christians to reject God's offer of righteousness in Christ by grace and to combine it with a righteousness of their own. Essentially what these uh, false teachers are saying is, yes, God has sent Jesus Christ. He has died on the cross for you. Put your faith, believe, trust in him. However, you still need to add to that some other things. And Paul says, no, no. The third term he actually uses is the term mutilators, which is most probably a sarcastic and specific blow against those who desire to reinstate Jewish religious practices and say they are necessary for salvation. In this case, he's talking about circumcision. And what's interesting is he actually uses a word that means to cut or to cut into pieces, which is not the proper term used by the Jews for circumcision. But it's actually a common term usually reserved for a pagan understanding of mutilation. Paul is not happy about this. He says, for it is we, not they, who are the circumcision, who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. For Paul, true circumcision is a matter of the heart, not flesh. He gives the concept of circumcision a spiritual meaning now. Those who worship in the spirit, who boast in Christ, who have no confidence 
and their own flesh, their own achievements. They are those who are truly of the circumcision group. It's not about becoming righteous by merely going through a ceremony, but rather true circumcision is spirit-inspired service and join Christ Jesus. That's what it truly means. And those who live according to that way boast in the Lord because knowing Christ far surpasses even blameless observance to the law. Furthermore, by adding any type of works or identity symbols to the gospel, eliminates grace and exchanges gratitude for boasting in the flesh or having confidence in the flesh. For Paul, you either boast in God's grace alone or in your own achievements. You cannot bring them together and mix the two. It's either by grace or it is not. And Paul says if anyone could boast about achievements, listen to my resume. The reason Paul didn't rely on Jewish credentials was not because he didn't possess them. In fact, he goes on to list them. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul begins with his own circumcision for obvious contextual reasons. But then he moves on to his membership in the ancient people of, of, people of God, including tribal origins. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. This contrasts them somewhat to the Jews who had in his time kind of embraced the the Greek culture as it spread throughout the Mediterranean. In In that time, many Jews actually became ashamed of their Jewishness. They tried to live and act much like Greeks. Sometimes even historians tell us to the point of having their circumcision cosmetically restored or hidden so they could actually attend Roman bathhouses. Furthermore, Paul writes, I was blameless according to the righteousness found in the law. Paul was a law-keeping Pharisee. Pharisees were highly educated Jewish leaders who spearheaded the opposition against Jesus and the early church. They rigorously defended the letter of the Jewish law. Paul, we know, he says he came from a line of Pharisees. He studied under Gamaliel, who was a highly respected Pharisee. He tells us this in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, we are told that. Paul says he was faultless in regards to observant behaviour. There were no blemishes on his record, is what he's saying. He had advanced beyond his peers and was extremely zealous for the traditions of his ancestors. Essentially, Paul gives us his CV. It's about status. It's about achievements. 
The list is not just what he was given by birthright, a Hebrew of Hebrews, but what he himself achieved. That's what he used to think gave him a right standing before God or made him acceptable to God. Now, he says all of his achievements are nothing but trash, garbage, refuse. For Paul, in verses 7 to 9, knowing Christ is all that matters. Verse 7, he says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Paul considers all those achievements he has just listed as loss. The word indicates that which is damaged and has no further use. It's garbage. That's essentially what the word means. It's worthless in comparison to knowing Christ. They are street refuse. His birth status and all his achievements in comparison are worthless. The life ambition of Paul was to know Jesus Christ once he met him on the road to Damascus. And it's very interesting because the word know that he uses there means to have a personal acquaintance or experience with Jesus. This is Paul's major passion, to get more knowledge of Jesus Christ by experience. He could aim no higher. There was no end to knowing about the greatness of Jesus Christ. To know Jesus Christ is to know about his historical life. It's to know correct doctrines or teachings regarding the person of Jesus Christ. It's about knowing and following his moral example. It's about knowing his great work on our behalf. But it's more than that. It's much more than that. It's about experiencing him in your life as a refiner, a provider, a king, a shepherd, food for the soul, and the list goes on. It's about experiencing him both in the mind and in the heart. It's interesting how many people feel that coming to Jesus Christ initially for salvation is all you need to know about him. Initial salvation only introduces us to him. It doesn't exhaust the wonder of his person. Believers, as believers, we are not only brought to the process of redemption, but we are brought to the Redeemer himself. And that's what it's all about. J.I. Packer, the late J.I. Packer, theologian, says, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. He goes on, knowing God and being known by God is indeed heaven on earth. Furthermore, Paul writes in verses 9 to 11, 
Only true righteousness is given by Jesus Christ as we become united with him when we put our faith in him. He writes that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith and trust. What is righteousness? What is this righteousness that he talks about? Righteousness is essentially, when it's spoken about in Scripture, primarily a quality of God's character. It's about being right or just. And it's used to speak of an attribute of God which essentially means his faithfulness or his truthfulness. When it's used of believers... It means that in Christ, the individual becomes all... Listen, all God requires the person to be. Isn't that incredible? All that we are required to be is found in union with Jesus Christ. Not some external written code. Not trying to adhere to religious traditions. And this experience of knowing Christ results results in a righteousness received that is not a self-generating righteousness, but is received as a matter of faith and trust. Those found in him receive a true righteousness, a righteousness which is from God, a legal standing that we are righteous because of what Christ has done for us and because of our union with him. That legal standing is then progressively worked out in our life as the Holy Spirit takes charge and moulds us each day to be more and more like Jesus Christ. I just want to pause for a moment because Paul makes a statement in verse 10 which is very, very interesting. He says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is complex, deep theological teaching put into this passage by Paul. When I first read that, I thought, my goodness, what is he talking about? How can you know the power of his resurrection? How can you participate in the sufferings of Christ? How can you become like him in his death? What does Paul mean? In one sense, Paul is talking, I think, about participating in the persecution or struggles that naturally come with the life of one who is a disciple of Jesus Christ. There is natural persecution and suffering that you will have to endure being a Christian or a follower of Jesus. In another sense, being in Christ in a spiritual way unites us in the fellowship with Jesus in his sufferings, in his resurrection, and in his ascension. And this is really, really important for us to understand. Because Paul, in Romans chapter 7, he actually uses the illustration of marriage to explain what he means here. That if a woman's husband dies... The marriage law no longer applies to the lady because the husband has died. The law doesn't apply to a dead person. So therefore she is free from the marriage and allowed to marry again. 
Likewise, because a Christian is spiritually united to Jesus, we are united to him in his death, we are united to him in his resurrection, we are united to him in a sense in his ascension. And because Jesus, and we, we symbolize that with baptism. Before you get into the water, you go under the water, and as you emerge. We have been in Christ taken beyond or through the process of death. Therefore, we are in a realm in which the Lord does not apply anymore. We are beyond the jurisdiction or authority of the law because we are in him. The law no longer applies to us. But what matters, says Paul, is one's faith or trust in Jesus Christ. That's all that matters. And that's why Paul gets so upset when anybody tries to change that fundamental message or add any kind of religious tradition or law to it. It's either grace for Paul or not. And this righteous standing that a Christian receives is because of our union with Christ. And that's why Paul writes, it is apart from the law. You don't have to work to gain a righteousness that is given as a gift. But a righteousness which cost Jesus everything. He also says, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And I thought, whoa, whoa, whoa. That doesn't sound like certainty of hope to me. So I jumped into the Greek, had a look, and it can actually be traded at, tra translated as to arrive at or to become a partaker of. So I, think, I don't think Paul was doubting his participation in the resurrection that is to come, but was viewing it in terms of expectation. To conclude, you know, I'm going to jump to verses 15 and 16 here. Paul makes a final application or appeal. All of us then who are mature should take a view of these things. And if on some point you think differently... That too, God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Paul just concluded his personal story with a passionate declaration of his pursuit of knowing Jesus Christ as his personal saviour, fully and completely. And now he speaks directly to the believers in Philippi and indirectly to us. He says, let us live up to what we have already attained. That is, behave in conformity to what you already are in Christ. It's a way of saying, bring one's life or behaviour into conformity to what you have received from God and what is to come. And most commentators I've read believe that many of the believers in Philippi had lost their vision and focus on the crucified, risen Lord, including his return. And I think that is happening today in the church. Therefore, Paul says, in light of what I've written, 
live in the present with an eye to the future, to the future glory, not on earthly matters, not on earthly matters. That final glory when all are conformed into the likeness of Christ, the one we desire to know above all else. That's what it means to be mature, to live out, to experience in absolute joy your present status in Jesus Christ. To keep oneself from being caught up in the flow of this life is simply about keeping your eyes on Jesus Christ and growing to know him more and more and more. And that is heaven on earth. What else? Would you desire above that? Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. He is our all in all. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move in our hearts to make our knowledge of Jesus Christ personal and real in our daily walk. Help that to be our one ambition to enjoy the privileged status we have because of what Jesus has done for us and to live in a way which is conformity to him through your spirit working in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.